Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, Lord, and thank you for the time that we get to now focus on your word, Lord God. Heavenly Father, we do pray for Pastor David. We pray for safe travel mercies, Lord. We pray that you just help him get to India safely, help all of the messages that are going to be done in these few weeks, Lord, so many done for your glory and well. Sustain his health, sustain him, Lord, and be with his bride, Michelle, while he is away, Lord, and on her travels to see family. Please, Heavenly Father. And Lord God, we do right now together lift up Israel. We lift up everything that is going on over there, Lord God. And we pray for salvation, Jesus. We pray that people would come to know you, Lord. We pray that people would come to know Messiah has come and is coming again, Lord, and that they would come to faith. Lord God, we pray for the believers that are there, that they would boldly go forth in the midst of everything that is taking place and share who you are, Lord. We pray for salvation on both sides, Lord, and we pray for your nation, for your people, Lord, and we pray thanking you for the security we know of all of the promises to come, Lord, the eternal promises, Heavenly Father. And Lord, now as we prepare our hearts to go into your word, remove the distractions, remove the things that are in the way, and help us to focus on you alone, Lord. Help us not to be lost in the chore list or in what has to be done this week or the homework that needs to get done. None of those things, Lord but to just focus on you right now. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So last week, we started the journey with the woman at the well. And we had at the well, part one. Now we're doing at the well, part two. And as we do this, I want to remind us, if we can get the map up of the region that we're looking at. And seeing that, I want us to be reminded of the importance of making the journey the way Jesus did. So we looked at this last week, and remember, he's going up and he's going into Galilee from Judea. And remember, we saw the tension, we saw the dynamic that would be taking place between the Samaritans and the Jews. We understood and we discussed how the Southerners would call them half-breeds because they were mixed with uh, Gentile and Jew being mixed in this area, and they were not pleased with them. So they would avoid Samaria. They would go east on the Jordan River, up through Perea, and then get into Galilee. But we discussed how Jesus does not do that. He goes through Samaria. And something else that we looked at, the city that we end up in, Sychar, we saw the meaning of it throughout Scripture when we looked at the ancient city of Shechem. And we saw all of the important things that took place biblically as you journey through that time as you journey through that land. So if you missed last week, get on there, listen, check it out, and give a gander. And the other thing I want us to pay attention to is the mounts. So you have Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Now those two mounts, they're going to be important, and when we talk today, they're going to come up again. Because remember, Mount Gerizim is where the Sumerians built their own temple. Because they didn't think that they needed to go to Jerusalem, even though that's what was ordered by the word, they built their own place of worship. And they even went as far as to say it was so holy because of the time when blessings were set on that mountain with Moses, they believed that it was a blessed mountain. No, it was just a mountain where blessings were said, but they stretched it. And in the Sumerians, we see the reminder of what can happen when we don't just hold to the counsel of God's word. Because again, they had the scriptures, but they rejected much of it because they decided we're just going to take the first five books. We don't want anything to do with the prophets. We don't want anything to do with the wisdom. No, we don't need that. We're just taking the first five books. 
and they even twist, replace, and put things in their own ways. So that's our setting for today's passage. And something I want us to think about is the charge that we had last week. Because as we walked through the Old Testament, one of the charges of last week, study the Old Testament. Where are you with your own study of the Old Testament? Are you in it, or is it a book that you're kind of like, okay, well, that half of the Bible, it's not really that important. I'm just going to do the New Testament because there's Jesus. First of all, Jesus is all over the Old Testament, newsflash. Two, when you know the Old Testament, it brings the New Testament to life. Youth group, you remember, Old Testament, New Testament concealed, New Testament, Old Testament revealed. So make sure that we're being students of not just the New Testament, but also the Old Testament. The other thing that you were charged to do was to search your heart for who you dislike or who you despise. And that was a hard one because it's like, why are we talking about that? I don't want to think about that. Let's be real, people. We all have issues. So who are the folks that you have some resentment towards or that you have some dislike towards? And with our culture that's so polarized, we can build that up because it's like, oh, those people, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're not supposed to think like that. We're supposed to have the mind of Christ. Who is the Samaritan woman that you need to go forth and share the gospel with? As I told you as your pastor, I'm in prayer. Who is the modern-day hippie? We're part of the Calvary Chapel movement. We were just, I was just at a pastor's huddle this past Thursday, and one of the brothers and I from Winston-Salem, we were talking about that. We're like, we were going through the list of who we think are the modern hippies. I'll spare the list so you don't get worried who we're going to, we're just opening the doors. But don't get worried, because guess what? That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be God's hands and feet. We're supposed to be the bridge for people to know Jesus. But far too often within our culture right now, we want it to be comfortable and insular and safe. And I'm going to be real, guilty as charged at times. And this passage continually has convicted me. No, we got to just be the hands and feet. We don't get to decide who is worthy of hearing the gospel. That's not our call. That's our Savior's call. And he wants all to be able to know him. So today, we're going to journey onward with this tale, and we're going to look at verses 10 to 26. As we do this, I want us to look at this encounter at the well and see something interesting. It's a back and forth. Jesus says, she says. Jesus says, she says. It just goes back and forth, almost like a little game of tennis that goes back and forth and back and forth. And notice the length of her answers. Because when we go through this, you're going to see the moment that conviction can start to come in, she gets real short. It's like, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. But we are going to see the heart of this woman soften as we go through this. Because remember, in the passage we looked at last week, she said, how, how do you, a Jew, she calls him a Jew. But then by the end, we see her shifting, calling him sir. And then she will see him as Messiah. Now, Jesus tenderly addresses sin in this passage. And it's an important thing for us to see. And it's a reminder he did not come to bring condemnation. He came to bring conviction. And he brings conviction by speaking the truth. He focuses on speaking the truth. And there's moments where he could have taken the bait of gone on to debates or theological arguments, but he just stays steadfast in presenting the truth tenderly. Not with judgment, not with harsh accusation, just giving the truth. Now in that, we're also going to see a reminder in this passage of human nature. When conviction comes up, guess what we do? Deflection. We deflect. I don't want to go there. 
I don't want to think about that. I think it's a bigger issue in the global church. Conviction is just left out. No one does anything wrong. Everyone's right. You don't have to feel bad. Come to church. I'm going to puff you up. You're going to feel real good. And then go out there and feel good. And 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you're going to feel depressed. But you felt good while you were here. That's not what it's supposed to be. We need to embrace conviction. And we're going to see how Jesus handles deflection. When the deflection comes, sticks to the truth and goes forth to bring conviction. Because without conviction, there can be no conversion. Without conviction, saints, there can be no continuation in growing in who Christ needs you to be for his glory. Jesus, when he comes to this woman, he tells her basically through the conviction, masks off. For Jesus, there's no masks. Can't have them on because then you can't know him. And in this passage, we're also going to see Jesus explain worship. It's done in spirit and truth. And we're going to see how the Jews lacked spirit in their worship. And we're going to see how the Samaritans lack truth in their worship. And what we need is both. It's not about just picking one. It's both. In this passage, we're also going to see Jesus identify himself as Messiah. And this is a very explicit identification he gives more than in other places. He uses homage to the same words we see of Moses in Exodus, I am. We're going to see that. And it's going to be a reminder for us as a body of believers of Calvary Chapel of Chapel Hill to check ourselves. How are we doing with worship in spirit? How are we doing with worship in truth? How are we doing with both simultaneously? So let's stand up and read this passage together. So we are in John chapter 4, verses 10 to 26. We read, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of your word, Lord. Thank you for the living power of your word. Thank you for the double-edged sword that your word is. Thank you that it discerns our thoughts and the intents of our heart, Lord. Heavenly Father, may each and every single one of us be open to the conviction that you would give us this morning, Lord, to allow you to chisel, to refine us, that we can be closer to your image, Heavenly Father. God, I ask you, please, empower me with your Holy Spirit to bring forth the words that are needed for your people, the nuance and the areas to focus on that are needed for your people this morning, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to share your word with people. I'm humbled by it, Lord. I feel unworthy to be your vessel. And I say thank you, Father, for the chance to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now, have a seat. Sorry. Verse 10. <laughs> Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So this phrase we saw last week, we looked at this, and we're, we're looking at it again. He's already pointing to the fact you need to see, you need to believe, and then you can receive. He's pointing to what he's come to do. If you only knew, if she knew, I think we could all agree she'd pray a lot more. The whole conversation would just shift, bam, to a whole prayer. But that's not what happens here because she's listening to him. If you knew the gift of God, it's a gift. Right away, he makes it clear. If you knew, if you were aware, there's this gift and the one who says to you, give me a drink, that one, if you know, you would have asked him, and he would give you living water. He's offering this gift to her, but there's something unique about the state that he asks her to come in, as she is. There's no prerequisite for her before she can get that gift. There's no, you need to do this class and attend five times and hop on one foot and wear this thing, and then we're going to pray over you. No. There's no prerequisite. We come to Jesus as we are. And then as we have relationship with him, as the word of God comes into us and the Holy Spirit reveals it and convicts it, guess what? We change. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the power of salvation. He has sparked her curiosity. He sparked her curiosity for the things of God. He sparks her curiosity for who he is. And he sparks her curiosity for what he gives. And what he says he gives is living water. Remember, she's at this well that has stagnant water, and he's offering living water that's going to be from a spring. So by the physical, she can get lost in that and say, wow, this is going to be really great. But she has no idea the supernatural, spiritual truth that surpasses the expectations in this moment. Her response, verse 11. The woman said to him, sir, notice the change there. He was Jew, now he's sir. So something has shifted. Something is softening a bit in her heart. There's a little respect. You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. She sees him there. We know from context that the disciples have gone to get food. He would have his carrying leather pouch. That's what would be used to put down in the well that's over 100 feet deep to put that down to get the water, but he doesn't have that. How are you going to do that? You have nothing to get water. Where then do you get that living water? Where do you get it? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Now this is where any other Jew would get quite upset in this moment because she, a Samaritan, has just said our father Jacob. 
And she's saying, I'm a descendant of Jacob. Now we know, not true Samaritan, but that's what she's getting lost in. Remember, what they believed, because the land and the region that they took was the land of Ephraim and Manasseh. They believed that through Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons, Jacob's descendants, that they were actually descendants of Jacob through that. Not reality, but it's what they believed. And remember, that's partially why they called them half-breds. That's why they were frustrated. But again, they came to this belief. And if you're just taking the first five books of the Bible and they're ignoring something like Isaiah, it's pretty easy to say what you want to say and believe it. And that's something we have to be mindful of in our culture today. That's why I keep saying his word, his spirit, his way, his word, the entire counsel of the word of God. We can't just extract a little portion of the word of God and then run with it. Too many people do that. You could take a scripture out of context and make it say whatever you want. Any scripture that's put in front of you, don't just read it and say, oh, praise God. Say, okay, thank you for giving this to me. And then look at what's before it, look at what's behind it, think about who's writing the book, who is it being written to, what's the purpose that it's being written to, how does it fall into the whole timeline of the counsel of the word of God. That's how we have to take that. Now, in this, when she starts bringing up the lineage, this is a place where Jesus could debate. This is a place where Jesus could have said, you're actually not, and let's talk about that. What scripture have you found to tell me that you're this? But he doesn't get lost in the debate. He focuses on truth. Because in this moment, the most important part is her soul seeing she needs Jesus. And you've got to remember that when you're evangelizing, do you get lost in a debate with the person you're talking with? Or is your focus, their heart softening to know who Jesus is? Because guess what? If you believe in the sufficiency of the word of God, once they're in the word of God, all the things that you want to have a debate about will get sorted. Leave that to the Holy Spirit. Leave that to the power of the word of God. Now in this, again, he doesn't get lost in debate. Verse 13, his answer. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. So in this, Jesus, again, we see the back and forth. Jesus says, she says. Jesus says, she says. Jesus has a goal. You need to see your spiritual need. You need to see your spiritual need. She's focused solely on the material realm, and he is not in the material realm. He's in the spiritual realm. He's in the realm of talking about everlasting life. He's saying, whoever drinks of this well, you're going to thirst again. Whatever you're trying to obtain in your life right now, whatever hobby you do, whatever passion that you have right now, whatever you are really into outside of the things of the word of God, I want you to write all over it. Whoever drinks of this well will thirst again. Because we can trick ourselves, saints, into thinking the thing that I'm doing, I'm going to feel so good if I do this. If I just get to that fitness class, I'm going to feel so good and it's going to be so great. And now that's an idol because I never even actually spent any time with God. But my abs are sore. (laughs) That's not how that works. We need to be mindful. We need to be realizing the material realm is never going to satisfy you. The material realm will never meet your needs. That new house that you want to get, that's going to be so great. I'm going to design the kitchen like this. I'm going to put that there. 
All the time you're thinking on that, is it balanced with the time of you praying for souls to know Jesus? Just a thought. Because when you die, the house ain't coming with you. It'll stay here. So Jesus right away is saying, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. You're going to get thirsty again. It's not going to satisfy you. And then he says, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. And this is flowing in the pattern that we see because Jacob's well is the old water. Jesus' well is the new water, the water of everlasting life. He says something similar in John 6, 35. If you flip a few pages ahead, John 6, 35. And we know this well, and it's up there. All of the references mostly, unless I go off, sometimes I try to get them up there for you guys. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now in this, we see as we go through the Gospel of John, we're going to see so many imagery pictures that Jesus uses to point to who he is. Living water, the bread of life. Eat my flesh, drink my blood, walk in the light, abide and remain in the word. All of these images. And he's saying here, if you drink of the water that I would give from that well, you'll never thirst again. So for you today, question for you, what is it that you really want right now? What are you longing for? What are you searching for? What do you want to hunt to make you happy. Because my question to you is, are you content with Christ alone? Is your contentedness found in Christ alone? Or are there things and other ventures that seem more important? Now, to be clear, I'm not saying get into a room, just read the Bible over the time, have no fun, Calvary Chapel of Chapel Hill. No, that's not what I'm saying. But what's your priority? What's number one for you? What's most important We're in Psalms, and Psalms starts by saying, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the godly, stands in the path of sinners, or sits in the seat of the unrighteous, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And that blessed means happy. Happiness comes from one place alone, the word of God. So do you drink from the well of the world, or do you drink from the well of our king? And this drink, we're not talking about just one sip. Okay, I'm good. No. We're talking about continually drinking, continually abiding. That's how it's everlasting because we have to continually drink from that well. Going on. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So now he goes farther to explain the water that I'm giving is going to spring up with inside and it's going to give everlasting life. What he's talking about is salvation. He's talking about that beautiful moment when the Holy Spirit enters at salvation. Turn to John chapter 7, verse 37. Few pages. On, that, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Again, that imagery, we're going to see it throughout this gospel. 
He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see that in Isaiah. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. They believe and they will receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So in this passage, we see that reminder of what's going to come. And we see it in the portrait of that living water that's going to spring up. That's when the Holy Spirit comes on to the new believer. Think about what we saw in John chapter 3, verse 8. So now we're going back. I know we're bouncing a little in the book of John. But John 3, verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Because we have to remember when we're seeing here that he's talking about this fountain of water springing up within the person. He's talking about when the Holy Spirit is breathed into the believer. Think about when we first started John. We talked about that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we talked about how Genesis, at the first initial creation of man, what did God do? He breathed into the nostrils. At the moment of salvation, for the disciples, what does he do? Turn to John 20. Verse 22. John 20, verse 22. And this is again looking now at the new birth, the new life that comes from Christ alone. We read, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. So when we look at this passage that we're in, uh, back in our text in verse 14, and where Jesus is talking about you're never going to thirst again, and it's going to spring up, this could be a place now where we have a long talk about the Holy Spirit, and I try to get you to spring it up inside of you and start gyrating and feeling all these things, and the Spirit has fallen, you are all baptized, run around the room. No, that's not it, folks. Stop abusing the Holy Spirit, please, and repent of it. What we're seeing is the Holy Spirit coming in at salvation. The Spirit that is given to comfort us, to teach us. The Spirit that is given to bring to remembrance God's Word. That's who comes into us at that moment. That who is who springs within. This is not about an emotional sensation moment. This is not about sensationalism. This is about salvation. This is about that moment that changes one forever and ever and ever. Because if you think about it, in this portrait, in the imagery that he gives, Jesus hits the areas that we all need. We need air, we need water, we need breath, we need food. And he says, who's the air? The Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Who's the food? He's the bread of life. Who's the water? The living water that comes in. Christ, Messiah. Her response to this. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. So there's a little excitement there. There's there's going for this. Give me this water. I don't want to thirst. I don't want to have to come back here. I don't want to have to do this. Her initial response is about the convenience and the ease. That's the initial response. 
Because remember, Jesus is trying to have her see the state of what she needs. There's no reality of what's needed there. It's just, whoa, that sounds great. I won't have to come get the water anymore. This is great. Give me some of that. That's easy. I want that. We get a portrait in this of what the soil of her heart is. Turn to Matthew uh, 13 with me. Because if we think about the parable of the sower, when we see that in Matthew, this is a chance where we get to see what a shallow heart looks like. What it looks like when that heart, the word's gone forth, but I'm just sticking shallow. So when we look, 13, verse 18. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, Then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. So this is one where it's just not going, just doesn't take place. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Think of this. That's great. Give me this water. I want that water. Give it to me. Yet has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. So what we see there, if this conversation stopped there, she may joyfully, okay, this is great. I'm going to get this water. I don't really understand what that means. I don't really know. Now I'm run out of water. I'm done with that living water. I got to go back to the stagnant well to get water because I need to hydrate. That's what we're looking at there. And then as we continue, now he who received seed... Among the thorns is he who hears the word and cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. Stuck in the material realm. But he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So we see in this passage that we're looking at the heart That's needed. The heart, the soil of the heart needs to be ready for Jesus. How does the soil of the heart then get plowed? How does one plow? How does one till the soil that that conviction can lead to conversion? One thing brings conviction, the word of God. Truth. Truth still going forth, which is why as we look in this account, Jesus continues anchored in truth. Because her response, again, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. It's that joy. It's shallow, but it's going to be easy. It's going to be convenient. That's culture right now, unfortunately. And if we think about historically the church age, we know there's either you're, you're set and you're going or you're dead. There's, there's no real difference going on. And, and when we look at this passage, we're reminded of the church that doesn't want to embrace conviction. We're reminded of the church that wants to make sure, as I said before, you feel good. It's about how you feel. You need to feel really good about yourself. That's my job. And if it's your first time here today, I'm excited that you're here. I'm grateful that you're here. My job isn't to make you feel good. My job is to deliver the word of God to you and let you wrestle with what it does for you. It shouldn't be about an experience. Church is not an experience. Church is about Jesus. We come into his house to worship him. We come into his house to learn about him. It's not about you. Sorry. Not sorry. It's not about you. It is not about you. So we need to be mindful of that. We need to remember that because too many people right now are getting pumped up wherever they are. And boy, is that buzz going to have a big crash later. 
we've got to just stay with the word of God. That has to be sufficient. That has to be enough. What are you thirsty for? What are you thirsty for? Because again, the springing up, it's not about emotion. What are you thirsty for? It's not about, I want to have this set experience that I know I'm controlling. It's being surrendered to him. It's letting your life be the proof of who he is in you. And we've gone through John 14 a few times. Can't wait till we get there when we see just how much we can rely on the Holy Spirit for. To bring to remembrance all things. Whoo, that's great. And Acts 1.8, the power of the Holy Spirit. I've talked about this before. Given that they could preach in all the world and they preached some of them to persecution to death, but they took it joyfully. I think of Stephen the martyr who says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing because he's so focused on living for Christ, doing what he's called to, that guess what? In that moment, all that matters is I am Christ-like. I am Christ-like. It's not about success. It's about being Christ-like. So he's able to surrender in that moment. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Shallow. He's going to plow the ground. Here comes the truth. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. Now, there's a few things with this. One, culturally at this time, remember what we learned about the rabbis. They wouldn't even talk to their wives in public. How's it looking that this dude's just hanging out with this woman to the bystanders that may walk by? Not okay. We got to get the cultural boundaries going. He says to go call your husband. At this time, we already read this. We know there's not just one husband. But from that, culturally, the rabbis would have allowed two or three divorces. That's max. She's over that max already. And all he's doing right here is saying, go call your husband and come here. This isn't a verse because some people in, in prepping, I found some folks trying to say, look at how mean Jesus is. How does that mean? It's just facts. He's just presenting the facts tenderly. He's just presenting. Go call your husband and come here. Now look at her response. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Now notice, if you look at all the other answers she's given up until this point, she's got a lot to say. If you think about, how do you, a Jew, you coming over here, ask me, a Samaritan, to do this? How could you do this? Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than Jacob? She's got a lot to say. But in the face of conviction, the mouth stops. She ain't got nothing to say. I have no husband. And moves. Because she's giving what she sees as a truth. And that's what we try to do. That's what when conviction comes, we deflect. Even the believer, you can be sitting there right now, and whatever the Lord brings conviction on your life, and you're kind of like, all right, I got to push that away. I don't want to think about that. Let me think about something else. Susie's got a soccer game Wednesday. We deflect. And in this moment, that's what she's saying. Go call your husband and come here. Response, I have no husband. What does Jesus do? Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. He's not judging her. He's not going harsh. He's not screaming at her. That's right, you harlot, look at you, and you, all of these things. That's not what takes place here. He just presents the facts. He just goes through and says, yes, okay, 
you have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one that you're with right now, that's not your husband either. If you are here today and you're living with the person that you are dating and courting and you are not married, there's your biblical proof, move out. That's a reality. Because our culture has made it that we try things out before marriage, we, we live together. This right here is that reminder. We don't get to redefine marriage. God has given the definition of marriage in Genesis. He's given it. One man, one woman, one flesh. Basta così. He's given it all. That's what we have to look at. So again, I lovingly say, if anyone here, or, well, we're engaged. It's okay. No, it's really not. So let's talk about that. Let's just be real about that. Honor God. Honor the one who gives everlasting life. Honor the one who enables you to never have to thirst again. Is what you want for your flesh more important than the Savior? So in that, that's just a quick cultural phrase right there for us to realize. But what is Jesus doing in this moment when he says, yeah, you have five, and the one you're with is not? He's confronting sin. Guess what? We have to confront sin. In your life, you have to be willing to confront sin. You have to be willing to say, okay, I'm going to look at myself and Lord, search my heart. That's what we're going through. The Psalms, every Wednesday, I tell everyone, okay, it's another week of open heart surgery, folks. Let the Lord search your hearts that you can be who he needs you to be. Her response, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So in this, when Jesus puts everything out there, guess what he's done? He's ripped off the mask. He said, guess what? No masks with me. Masks off. What mask are you wearing? Truly, do you have any masks you're wearing? Because if you have masks you're wearing, take them off. Take them off before the king. It's easy to play the game of church. Don't be a coattail Christian. You need to have your own relationship. Youth, you need to work out your relationship with the Lord. You can't rely on whatever family member brings you to church. I'm covered. No. What masks do you have? And she sees here, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. She confronts her sin. No, she doesn't. She deflects again. She takes another moment to say, okay, something, you're, you're a prophet. Let's talk about the places of worship, because, you know, before we go on that other thing, I've got to get lost in this religious debate. So the Catholics, you don't want to pray. They pray to Mary. You guys don't want to pray to Mary. Can we talk about that? I want to understand that more. No, look at your sin. Look at the things that you need to repent of that Jesus can be Savior and Lord of your life. It's not about getting lost in a theological debate, but that's where she tries to go. We saw the map. We saw those two mounts. Again, they took Mount Gerizim, and they take only the first five books of the Bible so they can believe what they want. If you selectively read the Word of God, you can believe anything. God can tell you whatever you want, and no one can interfere with it but you're deceiving yourself. You can't deceive God. He is Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. So our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Again, Jesus doesn't get lost in the debate because now she wants to make it about, well, where does the worship happen? How does this go? Look at what Jesus responds. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, 
The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Jesus says, guess what? Worship, not about the location. You're lost on the location. You're lost on the geography. The time's coming where it's not about that anymore. How can it not be about that anymore? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. And if you don't want to turn there, we'll pop it there. Or do you not know that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Guess what? Our bodies are his. Our bodies are his temple. We're called to be a living sacrifice. That's about it. The vessel that we have is the worship song unto Jesus, unto Messiah. That's what happens because guess what? The Holy Spirit breathed in at salvation now dwells in. You're the temple of that. And the context of this is addressing fleeing from sexual immorality, fleeing from sin. And we looked at that when we saw the temple cleansing earlier in this gospel. What do you need to take care of your temple? so that it's removed. That's the the playoff on the men's group, building his temple, is because men of God, we need to be real and confront the sins in our lives and be the best men we can be. Men of God, we need to learn how to share with one another and be accountable and not put up these masks of, I got it all together, man. No, you don't. No one does. That's why we need Jesus. So we need to be real with one another. Verse uh, 22, you worship, plural you is being used there. What you do not know, because the Samaritans are in ignorance. We know what we worship, the Jews, for salvation is of the Jews. They have the whole scripture that's revealed at that point. They're reading the prophets. They know Messiah is going to come. They know Messiah is going to be of Jewish line. So in this, we get an important reality Jesus also highlights. The Jews, they're worshiping, but there's no spirit there. And he's called that out already because it's all about outward deliverance. It's all about ceremony. It's all about laws. It's all about these things. There's nothing about within because I got it. I do it all myself. God doesn't have to do anything. And then the Samaritans on the flip side, they have no truth. I've said it a few times. They just chucked out parts of the scripture, rewrote other parts of the scripture because they're going their own way. We go on. Verse 23, but the hour is coming. And now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. He lays it down. You hear worship a lot in those verses. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. The hour is coming. True worshipers. There's a truth. There's one way of worship. True worshipers will worship the Father. There's one object of worship, God the Father. How will they do it? In spirit and truth. And guess what the Father's seeking? Those who will worship him in spirit and truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Let's talk about spirit. Think about our bodies. We have our body, we have our soul, we have our spirit. Our body, it's the physical. Our bodies can own us at times. I'm hungry. You know, I'm tired. I go lay down. I have a headache. I'm going to do this. I have this. I have that. I'm ruled by my body. Fasting, great exercise to discipline your body and bring it in subjection. Paul says it. It's a great exercise to train your body how to have no. Then we have the soul. The soul houses our emotions, our intellect, and our will. The soul is the chamber of a phrase I struggle with. I feel. 
I feel like God is upset with me. I feel like God's telling me to buy a castle. I feel like dot, dot, dot. Stop feeling. Jeremiah 17, 9, your heart's wicked and deceitful. Who can know it? Who can trust it? Why are you listening to your feelings? They're going to lead you down a rabbit hole of destruction. You can't go on feelings. It's just a no dice. It's a no dice. Because the spirit that's breathed into you is married to the word of God. Remember when we looked at John 3, we talked about the parents of salvation, the word and the spirit. It's not about what you feel. It's about thus saith the Lord. Period. And reframe your talking, saints. That's my charge for this church. We're not at the charge yet. We'll get there soon. But reframe your talking. I was meditating upon scripture. And as I read Isaiah 53, uh, 5, I had such a strong conviction from the Lord for lost souls who are dying of the sin-sick disease of not knowing Jesus. Versus, God told me. And I'm not saying God doesn't speak unto us. God doesn't minister to us. He does. But it's married to the word of God. It's married to the word of God. Check it against the word of God. Root it in the word of God. Because guess what? When you're worshiping in spirit, you completely surrender yourself. And then the second part, when you're worshiping in truth, guess what the truth is? The word of God. His word, his spirit, his way. I have a, his word, start with that word. His spirit, because it's going to be in accordance to his word. His way, because it's going to check with his word and the spirit's going to empower me to do what he's called me to do. Truth is transparent. Truth is sincere. Truth is in accordance to biblical mandates. We don't want to talk about that in our culture. Biblical mandates, what's that? There are biblical mandates on how to live, finances, the gifts of the Spirit. They are real, and there are biblical mandates around them. Biblical mandates on worship, biblical mandates on everything. Is your life in accordance to the Word of God? Where are you with biblical integrity? Do you take the full counsel of the word of God or do you take what's convenient and push away what you don't want to address? We have to take the whole thing and it can't be one or the other because if you're all about spirit, you're going to be an emotional basket and if you're only about truth, you're going to be a legalistic one. I don't know how else to put it. It's got to be balance. That's the beauty of um, hoping early in 2024 for us to work through the Calvary Chapel distinctives just to remind us of who we are, what we believe. It's balance. Because when you go to the word of God, it's balance. It's just taking the word in context, rightly divided, and settling with it. So if you want a reminder of how to do spirit and truth, turn with me to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This right here is the pocket of how to do Worship in spirit and truth. Verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Some translations say, which is your spiritual worship. By spirit, it is giving your body completely over. I surrender to you, your will. I'm saying no to what I want, so I can say yes to your way and what you want. Youth group, you know my favorite verse, Luke 9, 23. Deny yourself how? Daily. That's what it is. Denying ourselves daily. That's what that is, being that living sacrifice. That's spirit. Then verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Not about living for the world. Renew your mind. Only one thing renews your mind, saints. The word of God. Nothing else. 
well, there's this great book that's by this Christian believer. I don't care. That's not going to renew your mind. Only the word of God renews our mind. That encapsulates everything. Because he's given the call in Deuteronomy and he, that call comes back from Jesus. We just recently looked at it, Mark 12, 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You can't do that if you're not worshiping in spirit and in truth. Because it's about giving all of yourself to him. Saints that are with us on Wednesday nights, that's what we just are pondering in Psalm 9 when we had, I will love you, O Lord, with all my heart. I love you, O Lord, my strength in Psalm 18. It's about that full surrender and submission and sacrifice unto him denying self. The spirit is surrendered devotion to God. The truth is submission to the accordance of God's word and his biblical mandates. That's the heart of worship. And if you think of that great song, I'm coming back to the heart of worship where it's all about you. It's about him. Sorry, Lord, for the things I made it. It's not about me. It's about you, Lord. Let's close now. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. Then we get the parenthetical from our author who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And she knew this. Deuteronomy 18.15 points to that. Deuteronomy 18.15 reminds us he's going to be coming. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. She took that to know there's a Messiah coming. And then Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. He doesn't reveal himself like that in other situations. If you look quickly at John 6, 14 and 15, when it comes, then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. When he's in the Jewish regions, he never reveals like this because they're looking as Messiah, political king. And he's about his father's perfect timing for the revelation of who he is. But here, to this immoral outcast woman, he says... I who speak to you am he. And that should remind us, if we think about who she was culturally, the sin that she has, do not tell me Jesus does not want all to come to repentance. He wants all to know him. Chapter 3 paints the picture of salvation in this gospel. Chapter 4 gives us faith and worship. Notice how his encounter started with the woman. He starts with his humanity. Give me a drink. How does he end? I who speak to you am he, his deity. Because face to face with Jesus, you will see his humanity. You will see his deity, 100% God, 100% man. No masks with Jesus. What do you need to remove? Think of her. She's disillusioned. She's disappointed. She's restless. She's empty. She's dry. One water, the new water, salvation. If you don't know Jesus today, are you ready to come drink the water of everlasting life? Or is something else more important than eternity with him? I can't promise you what happens when you leave this door, but if this is your last day and you don't know him, you're in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. 
And for us who do know him, and we've gone through, we saw the new wine, we saw the new temple, we saw the new birth, now we've seen the new water. A few things for you for this week. One, rise every morning this week and deny yourself. Worship the Lord in spirit. Wake up. Lord, it's not about what I want. It's only about what you want. Two, worship him in truth this week. Get in the word of God more and more. And search your relationship with the word of God. Are you obedient to it? Do you twist or distort the word of God to make it say what you want? Do you embrace conviction? And here's one for you. Where are you with biblical integrity? Where are you with the mandates in God's word? And last, find the Samaritan woman in your life to tell of everlasting life. People are searching. People are empty right now. People are hurting. We need to share. We need to worship in spirit and truth. The old English of worship, worthship. The object of our worship is God, and he is worthy of that. I want to close with a Spurgeon quote that I like on all this. What does a thirsty man do to get rid of his thirst? He drinks. Perhaps there is no better representation of faith in all the word of God than that. To drink is to receive, to take in the refreshing drought, and that is all. A man's face may be unwashed, but yet he can drink. He may be a very unworthy character, but yet a drought of water will remove his thirst. Drinking is such a remarkable, easy thing. It is even more simple than eating. What do you thirst for? What do you drink? How do you worship? Spirit and truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this encounter and this reminder with the woman at the well, Lord, of the fact that you want all to be saved, Lord that you want all to come unto you. And Lord, help us to be your hands and feet, to share who you are more, Lord, with the people of this world, the people around us, Lord, for you are coming. We do not know the hour, and we see biblical prophecy stage being set, Lord. Let us not tarry in idleness, but share who our King is. And Heavenly Father, help us to worship in spirit and truth, where we fully surrender, Lord, and where we abide in your word alone, Lord. Please, Lord, you're the God, your king, your master, your everything, Lord. Help us to relish in that. Help us to focus on that. In Jesus' precious name, amen. You are my God. You are my king. You are my master.
praise you, Lord, have the rest of this day that we would yield to your will and you alone and live your word. In Jesus' name, amen.